exercise. It is spiritual readiness. You can even say that the only factor for the Israelites that determines whether they will conquer the land was whether they trusted God and trusted his word. Didn't have to do with how many men they had. Didn't that, we'd see that confounded many times over. Didn't have to do with their prowess. Didn't have to do with their skill. Didn't have to do with their battle experience. The only factor that mattered is trust in the Lord. And yet, at the same time, trust is shown through obedience. They did have to pick up weapons and fight at times. And yet, like we'll see in Joshua 6, when they come to the city of Jericho, it is a... a a siege that will require no weapons of war, hardly at all. They will take a trumpet, some, you know, and march around and effectively bring a city to its knees. And so it's very clear that God is going to do it. Their faithfulness is what matters, but trusting God, it doesn't make us passive. It should, in fact, invigorate humble obedience. And that's what, we're gonna, that's what we saw with circumcision. That's what we're going to see today, their commitment to remembering the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then to see ultimately their humble submission, their commitment to the commander of Yahweh's army. So let's begin. Joshua 5, we'll read 10 through 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. <clears throat> Passover. Passover reminds us of the birth of Israel as a nation, both the judgment that was brought upon the Egyptians and the salvation that God brought to Israel. So we need to do a little bit of recap to see the importance of this. So if you'd like, you can turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Bible. And uh, if you don't remember the, the story here, the Israelites had been in Egypt for about 400 years. And in the course of that time, they started out being a blessed people. If you remember through jo uh, Joseph, um, they were blessed in the land. They were highly regarded. But as time went on, the Egyptians started to see the Hebrews uh, as slaves, as an unwanted people group. And so they began to be subjugated to the point where they were um, slaves in the house of Pharaoh. And as they cried out to the Lord, the Lord heard and he appointed a man, Moses, to be uh, the spokesman of the Lord and to be the one who would confront Pharaoh and demand that he let the Israelites go. Now, Pharaoh stubbornly refused. And so to show his power and might uh, to Pharaoh and over all the gods of Egypt, the Lord brought 10 plagues against them. Now, the 10th plague was the death of all the firstborn in Egypt, from people to livestock, to the Pharaoh's house, to the lowliest slave. And up until this point, the other nine plagues that had come upon the land, the Israelites had been spared. They need 
not do anything but witness the power and the glory of God as it, judgment was raining upon uh, the Egyptians, sometimes literally, like flaming hail, literally. But for this plague, this 10th plague, they would require, or God would require the Israelites to do something, to exercise faith by obeying the Lord's command. And so Exodus 12 is the institution of what would be called Passover. Um, I won't read the whole thing, so I'm just going to kind of give you the, the overview of it, okay? Um, this essentially is so significant, this event, the Passover, that the, the Hebrews are going to reset their calendar. The, the month that this is happening is now the first month. Um, the, month the month is called Abib. And on the 14th day of the first month, they were going to, um, they were going to do something special, all right? Um, actually, on the 14th day, they're going to do something special, but there's a preparatory work that was going to happen on the 10th day. On the 10th day of the month, every household was going to select a lamb. One-year-old, male, without any blemish or uh, spot, or it couldn't be crippled or disfigured in any way. They were going to keep it until the 14th. So the 10th of the 14th, they were going to keep this little lamb in the house, and on the 14th day, in the evening, they're going to kill this lamb. And the blood of this lamb was to be put over the doorposts and the lintel of their house because on that day that they did this, the 10th plague was going to come upon Egypt. And as this angel of death was going to visit every house, every family, if he saw the blood that was covering, the blood of the land covering the doorpost, this 10th plague would pass over that house. And hence the term Passover. So um, the flesh of this Lamb was then to be roasted, the whole thing, eaten with unleavened bread, that is bread made without yeast, so it doesn't have time to rise. It's essentially just water and, um, and flour um, because there's no time for them to do that because there's a sense of urgency. And to eat this lamb with bitter herbs. And it's not stated explicitly for this reason, but um, this is not necessarily a celebratory time. The bitterness of the herb kind of reminds them that this is a somber uh, moment because all around you there's going to be death. You're going to hear the wailing of children, or the wailing, yeah, the wailing of children and parents as the firstborn of every household was perishing. Just a kind of a, a terrifying thought. Now, this event called the first Passover, it's heavily emphasized in the text that the blood of this lamb was the most critical focus. That the blood of this lamb, it's such vivid imagery of God in his judgment. That he is bringing death upon all people who do not have this blood over their lampposts. The only ones who will be spared are those who had the blood of this perfect lamb spilled from them. It's very clear as you read Exodus 12 that um, the, the blood is being shed for you to not suffer God's judgment that he's pouring out on all people, not just the Egyptians, but on everyone. So if there was a Hebrew household that said, eh, this sounds kind of bizarre, I don't know, um, all the other plagues, it didn't really affect us, and if they dared to not obey in this, they would have also suffered this penalty. There was, this is what trusting faith looked like, is them obeying this command. Um, 
And so it is that this very startling imagery of this helpless little lamb dying and shedding its blood becomes actually uh, a, a precursor, you could say a figure, a type of Jesus. And this is why John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 129. It's just to make that correlation startlingly clear. Now, these events happen like 1,500 years or so um, before the birth of Jesus. And yet God is weaving this story and telling us and showing us that um, he had this in mind from the beginning, that his own son would have to die. Passover reminds the Israelites that their salvation was only accomplished by bringing judgment on the Egyptians. The Israelites could not be the Israelites as a nation unless judgment was brought upon them all, not just the Egyptians again. And if they wanted to avoid the same fate, the same judgment of death, the blood of a lamb needed to be shed on their behalf. That's what Passover represents. Now, the first Passover becomes memorialized as an annual feast. So in Exodus 12, 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Verse 17, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. So, something kind of interesting occurs. The name of the feast is not the feast of the lamb. It's not the feast of the Passover, although it, it comes to be called Passover somewhat synonymously. But the technical name of the feast that memorializes the Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, it's to me, that's kind of a weird name for a feast. <laughs> you know, if you're going to have a festival, right, uh, we have a harvest festival that's kind of catchy. Um, to me, there, it doesn't make me excited. <laughs> Let's have a whole feast, and the theme of it is bread without any yeast on it. It's already, like, bread without yeast on it is basically like a, a cracker, already kind of not interesting, but if you say you're going to have a whole feast and there's no baked goods, how could it even be a feast, <laughs> you know? We're going to have a, a potluck, but no yeast is involved. So to me, like, it just is a big disconnect. And I mention that because it didn't dawn on me until I was pre preparing this message, like, this whole feast is about unleavened bread to the point where if there's any leaven in the house, you'll be excommunicated. Like, that's the whole deal with this feast. And it struck me as a little bit odd. Now, for those of you who don't know what leaven is or yeast, it's the thing, it's anything really that causes bread to rise or get fluffy. And it's just the most common leavener is yeast. So... Um, <laughs> This, uh, the penalty for having any of this leaven in your house uh, is the same as if you're not circumcised. You're outside of the family of God. You don't get to participate in the covenant of God. It just really, really emphasizes here that you shall not eat anything that is leavened. If you eat anything leavened, you're going to be cut off. It says it multiple times. Well, what, what is 
what does the leaven represent? What does that mean? Why is it so important? Well, on the, on the earthly level, yeast is something that can both permeate and proliferate, meaning that it, uh, the littlest bit of it can get into, you know, your bread or your food, and once it's there, it can reproduce very quickly. So uh, some yeast can reproduce itself in 90 minutes, like double in 90 minutes. Now, if you know how doubling works, I didn't do the math on this because I just I couldn't wrap my head around it so someone else can do it. But apparently, at least uh, one website all about yeast said that 10 milligrams of yeast, and 10 milligrams is like, you know, like super, super duper light. I mean, just, you know, might as well be holding dust. 10 milligrams of yeast could amount to 150 tons of yeast after a week, that's over 330,000 pounds. Just the principle of doubling like every 90 minutes. So when you think about it, that is something that can proliferate um, very rapidly and spread. Now, in Galatians 5.9, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, that is of dough. And he, there he's referring to how even a little bit of false teaching, specifically legalism, can enter into a church body and it can spread and proliferate very quickly. And so he's warning the Galatians, don't even let a hint of this. And, and ironically, the issue was, well, Christians need to be circumcised. If you let that in the door, Paul is saying, you'll have it spread before you can blink. Now on the positive side, Jesus uses the idea of leaven to refer to how the kingdom of God begins small, and can uh, grow large. Matthew 13, 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. The idea is, though you might start out with a little, you know, spark here in the New Testament of seemingly one man who's God dying, 12 disciples, yet through them the whole world has come to know who Jesus is. Well, not the whole world, but people from all around the world have come to know who Jesus is. So there's a more positive outlook on leaven. But does the Feast of Unleavened Bread portray leaven positively or negatively? Well, when you have any little bit of leaven in your house, you're going to be cut off from the community of God. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> Very bad thing. So clearly, um, leaven in this Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, the leaven represents something negative. In fact, it, it represents sin. You see, the same way that the Israelites were to scour their homes for leaven, in the same way those Israelites were to scour their hearts for the littlest traces of sin, it, it, it's, it's meant to be like a practical illustration. You go out and you look for any trace of this stuff, and not just little packets of you know, active dry yeast, but any bread that has leaven in it. You know, every crumb of it, you need to get out of your household. And if you're willing to put forth that kind of effort to remove leaven from your home, guess what? Should you not be as diligent to root out the sin that's in your heart? Now, when we bring this back into the time of Joshua, remember the men have recovered from uh, the circumcision, the sign of the covenant. The next step was for the whole nation to remember God's salvation from Egypt, the birth of their nation. And that what, what, what happened at the birth of their nation was God's judgment of sin. 
And so, likewise, as they're about to enter into the promised land, they needed to take seriously that God is looking at their heart, that if you are to enter in on the promised land, do not make the same mistake that those Egyptians did in acting unrighteously. In fact, don't do the same as your parents did as they were in the wilderness. See, the last time they had celebrated Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread was at, the, at Mount Sinai. They were there when you know, Moses was giving them the law. They celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then what did they do right after? <laughs> they, they sinned against God. I mean, they grumbled and complained. They, they did horrific acts of, of a spiritual adultery. They did not root out the leaven in their lives. And so because of that, they had not celebrated Passover since then. They had not celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The children of that generation were to look back and say, God takes sin seriously. <laughs> and if you trust him, if you really trust him, then you're going to humbly submit to him. You're going to obey him. Now, as I was thinking about this for myself, I noticed an interesting parallel between the, the Passover, the first Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. See, the first Passover, in Exodus 12, when you read the passage, very clear, the blood, the lamb, is the focus. But then in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the bread, the unleavened bread is the focus, the lack of leaven. Um, and I think in a way this kind of correlates to our own lives, that, that the blood of the lamb represents salvation in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, it focuses on that lifelong process of rooting out sin, which we call sanctification. So the, the Passover, salvation. The Feast, of, you know, you, 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 you put your faith in Jesus, you become a Christian. The Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds us that there's a continual, not just annual, but daily process of looking in our hearts, of rooting out sin, um, it just occurred to me, right, as I, <laughs> you know, God has saved us, but now we need to cooperate. We need to be responsible in overcoming the sin in our hearts. I thought it was being kind of clever and unique, and then I read 1 Corinthians 5. <laughs> Man, <laughs> someone's always, always said it before you, huh? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, uh, Paul is rebuking them for their tolerance of sin. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Well, this is pretty much just saying what I thought was a really, you know, good, insightful thing. It just, yeah, I mean, we are, he says, like, clear out your leaven because you really are unleavened, meaning you have been saved, you're saved already, you are clear, you know, without any sin in the eyes of God as he sees you as perfectly righteous and just because Christ imputed righteousness. But Paul's also, also saying, you know, you need to cleanse out the old leaven. In other words, you're still in a process simultaneously of being sanctified of rooting out the sin in your hearts. So, you know, I thought I was being really clever. And then, um, <laughs> yeah, I came to First Corinthians. Like, oh, well, you know, it's nice at least when the moments like that happen or you find yourself 
in, unintentionally finding out some theologian said almost exactly the same as you, that's always take it as an encouragement. Why? Because it means that you uh, are seeing the scripture the same way as other Christians have seen it. So you're not going crazy, you know. Well, I guess if Paul said it, it must be true. So I, I get, I'm thinking like Paul. Well, that's good, right? So don't ever take it as a slight if you, uh, if that ever happens to you. But hey, I really did think I was onto something here. And then, oh, right, Paul. Paul already said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Just like the feet, like Passover happened once, you know, like Passover, the actual Passover happened once, just like your salvation happens once. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread was supposed to happen continually, generation after generation, just like we were to continually sanctify, you know, walk in sanctification. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's what I was, thought I was being kind of clever about. But yeah, Paul... Paul kind of got, got ahead of me there <laughs> by a couple thousand years. <laughs> now, going back to Joshua 5, um, notice that what's significant and kind of unique about this celebration of Passover, not only that it had been, you know, 40 years or so since they'd last celebrated it, is that they were also able to enjoy the produce of the land. That here they are in the promised land, and they get to celebrate, uh, especially because they get to uh, taste the fruits of God's faithfulness. Taste the fruits of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now remember that in the wilderness, God had been providing their sustenance up to this point. Um, God had been providing this mysterious substance called manna, which I, if I recall just means, what is it? <laughs> What's that? Uh, it's like a Hebrew. Man is a Hebrew word, but roughly translated is like, what, what, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Um, and also for protein quail. Text says here that, um, that they ate of the produce of the land, and once they did, the next day, the, miro, or the miraculous provision of manna ceased. And maybe you could say it this way, the promise of that regular miracle of the cycle of harvests and planting and sowing and seasons that began. So when you think about it, they, they only had manna and quail up until this point. Now let's think about this, okay? They did interact with a little bit with other tribes. So I was trying to say, well, is this a point to make here? Um, they did interact with other tribes, but mainly it was conflict and fighting and is with other pagan nations. So um, I suppose that they would have come across other kinds of food, right? You know, you, you, you conquer another enemy, and hey, they had food, right? They have, they have bread, and they got meat and things. Would they have eaten it, though, and taken the spoils? Probably not, because that would have been food sacrificed to their pagan gods, and that was uh, something that they would not have done. So if you're a good Hebrew, maybe some of those guys did partake of the, the spoils of war, but if you're a good Hebrew, you wouldn't have touched that stuff, meaning that... A good Israelite, up until this moment, had not really tasted anything other than manna and quail like their entire life. I, you know, other commentators are pointing that out. It didn't, I didn't think of it that way until here. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, kind of a mind-blowing thought. If you get, if you are the kind of person that just gets tired of something, you know, you, maybe you could put yourself in their shoes. Now, granted, like manna, you know, it doesn't describe it so much except that it's like a slightly sweet thing that you could eat just like that or you can make it into a kind of bread. Um, but I don't know, even if it's he heavenly provision, 
I see myself getting tired of that. <laughs> and I doubt that they had like a, like a bunch of Chick-fil-A sauces for the quail. So <laughs> maybe you get tired of the quail too. I don't know. But here they are faithfully, faithfully, right? Okay, the Lord has provided this for me, but just imagine your entire life. Just manna quail, manna quail. So here, this is quite literally a sweet moment as they eat from the grains and fruits of the promised land. Like how wonderful and delightful it would have been because it would have represented not just like a, a, something nice to your, your, your palate, which has really just had one kind of food, but you're, you're literally tasting the fruit of God's goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his love. It must have been a very wonderful, wondrous experience, um, <laughs> just the first normal meal that they had in a very long time. Am I making too much of a point about this? Well, What's interesting, and, and understand that grains and fruits, why didn't they have grains and fruits while they're wandering in the wilderness? Well, I mean, can you, if you're wandering in the wilderness, can you plant some food and then like go, go pick it up later? No, right? So just imagine, that's why they couldn't have it. That's why it's kind of emphasizing here. It kind of puts them, ties them into the land saying, you're going to be here for a while. So you can enjoy the, the produce of the land because this is where you're supposed to be versus when you're wandering and you could not plant, you could not grow, you could not uh, reap a harvest. Um, but what's interesting is in Numbers 13, okay, in Numbers 13, <clears throat> when they were first spying out the land, this was the moment where the people are on the cusp of entering into the promised land. The, those who had seen the exodus, those who were at Mount Sinai, the parents of the men um, and women on the plains of Jericho in Joshua's day, 40 years now prior, they are about to enter into the land. And Moses sent out 12, <laughs> bless you, 12 spies of which Joshua and Caleb were two. And they were to go into the land. And notice one specific command that Moses gave to them in verse 20. Uh, we'll start in, yeah, we'll just, yeah, we'll start in the middle of verse 20. So Moses is sending them into the land to go scope it out. He tells them, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now, the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. And you go down to verse 23, when they spy out the land and they come back, they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. So here is a callback to when they were there. They tasted the fruit of the promised land. It is sweet, it is good, it is delicious. God has brought them right there to enter in. And what do the spies say? They, these, this is the land to which you sent. We came to the land, verse 27. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. What were they implying? We can't, we can't conquer these people. They are in the same position as, as the, this next generation, Joshua. They have tasted of the fruits too. 
And they said, but we can't do it. They're too big. They're too many. No. Caleb basically said, no, we, can, we got this, <laughs> essentially. No, we got this. But the people, their hearts were in fear, and they said no. And because of their blatant disobedience, um, they are doomed to wander in the wilderness till they all die and until their children can receive the promised land, to stand on right there at the cusp, eat its fruit, and rather than say, we can't do this, we're too afraid, there are too many, to by faith enter in. So there's a reminder here that the people, because they chose to listen to the ten cowards rather than Joshua and Caleb, they were all cursed until they died. And because of the decision of these faithless parents, their children could not ever know, could not know the taste of grains and fruits until this moment. I mean, it's just a tragic kind of thought because they had not scoured their hearts of the leaven of sin. Their children had to wait to celebrate the Passover until after their parents had died. And there they stood without them in the promised land. They had to be circumcised as adults because, again, their parents, too, for that matter, had forsaken the Lord. So I do think it's kind of a callback. I do think it's significant to see kind of the parallel. They were there. They tasted the fruits. They could have gone in if they had just trusted the Lord because they didn't. Forty years. Now the children, hopefully, you hope when you read it, they know better. You hope that as they taste the fruit, They don't think, oh, but can we really take out Jericho? Can we really conquer this land with so many of our enemies? And uh, we know because we've read Joshua, yes, they can, they will. Not without some hiccups here and there, but for the most part, they will succeed where their parents have failed. I think it's all a little bit bittersweet. I mean, they're obviously happy to finally be in the promised land by the grace of God and the provision of God, but there's a sobering reminder here of the consequences of sin. They could not stand on uh, the, the, now the west side of the Jordan, entering in without thinking, hopefully, sober-mindedly, that our parents were here and they blew it. <laughs> are they gonna make the same mistakes? Are we gonna do the same as them? Or are we going to be faithful? Are we gonna trust the Lord? And, and we'll see whether they do or not. But all of that, I think, is, is kind of coming to bear upon them in that moment? Are they spiritually ready in a way that their parents were not to go in and lay hold of God's promises? Now, going back to Joshua. Chapter five, and I think we have time for this. Oh, good. (laughs) Going to verse 13. The last step of their preparation to enter the promised land is not only that they would have the sober-mindedness about sin, about the failings of their parents, about the community of God remembering the birth of their nation was that God judges sin. If we're not careful, if we don't lean on him and trust him, the same will happen to us is that they need to realize whose side they're on. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. 
And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, they are there. Jericho, this great walled city, is before them. It is the first step of their conquest of the promised land, and there is no plan. (laughs) Joshua hasn't received what God wants him to do yet. And so... You know, maybe he's anxious, maybe he's worried, maybe he's confident, but he is standing there, and as he's looking at Jericho, maybe praying, that's what I'd be doing, um, fretting a little bit, he looks, and a man stands before him. The drawn sword means that the man is a soldier and that he is prepared to fight. And so Joshua has just one question, are you for us, or are you for the bad guys. And I love this answer. No. <laughs> you know, do you like pie or cake? No. <laughs> do you like rap or country? No. <laughs> you know, it just, it's just, uh, no. <laughs> you know, do you like a dessert better or, you know, uh, the main dish? Yes. <laughs> it, it's, it's a wonderful answer. It seems like a non-answer, but it's all the answer that you need. There in the text, actually, it says, but, you know, no, but I am the commander of the army. But in the Hebrew, there's a little bit more of a, it's an interesting conjunction. It's a little bit more explanatory. In other words, it's, it's more like, no, your question is invalid because I am the commander of Yahweh's army. It's not just a no, but as if he's being dismissive. It's no, and here's the reason why? I'm the commander of Yahweh's army. And, and strangely, this man accepts Joshua's worship and even tells him, just as Yahweh, God, did to Moses in Exodus 3, when God called Moses to be um, the spokesperson that would lead the people out of Egypt, he tells him that he needs to take off his sandals because the place where he's standing is holy. Joshua bows down worships him, and there seems to be no rebuke. Now, this is what I think we call, there's a little bit of debate amongst um, theologians about whether this is one of the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. In other words, there are times in the Old Testament where it seems a figure, say the angel of the Lord, appears as a man, receives worship as God happened to Abraham. I won't go through, through all the texts, but uh, I do believe this represents one of those moments where Jesus appears in the form of a man, but not truly incarnated as a human being. It's almost as if to prep us for the idea. It should not have been completely shocking to the Jewish person that God could somehow be uh, encapsulated, you might say, enfleshed in a human form. Um, they should have been, you know, on paper okay with that because, hey, you remember that angel of the Lord figure, that commander of the Lord's army figure who receives worship and appears as a man? 
this is not the most bizarre thing about, uh, about Jesus. So the, the Jewish people were a little bit prepped for this Messiah uh, figure. In any case, we can debate about it um, because the point isn't actually whether this is Jesus or not, or the fancy word is Christophany, which is an appearing of Christ, or theophany, which is an appearing of God uh, in the flesh is what's presumed. Uh, Either way, this is not mainly about that. What this is mainly about, it just, oh, I love it because the more I thought about it, the more stunning and amazing and how perfectly it sums up how we should view ourselves. It It just gets to the core of it so good When he's asked, are you for us or for them? God's answer is no. God's answer is no. So whether this is Jesus or not, he is representing God in this moment. Now, if if you're like me, like me, you like arguing with people. You like getting in trouble with your friends and family and neighbors about everything from politics to who does the chores to, you know, your taste in movies. And as Christians especially... It's very easy to invoke this idea that God is on my side because I am right. I am righteous, or both. It's easy even to subtly think this way. I mean, this just just happened, you know. This happens all the time is I think I'm right, you know. Someone else is wrong, and since I'm right, God is on my side. And if God's on my side, guess what? He can't be on your side because he's, I'm the right one here, right? But you know what? God isn't on anyone's side. (laughs) Let's just take a real relevant example. Republicans and Democrats alike do this very same thing. They invoke the God is on our side of it. Now, I think generally you could say stereotypically Republicans who are Christians typically have this idea more that God is on the side of, say, Republicans because they, you know, quote-unquote, hold to more conservative, biblical values, etc. American Christians might even generally think that God is on America's side because we are a Christian nation with Christian roots and biblical foundations. It's true as that might be. If you don't want to make it political, you might think that God is on your side as a husband or a friend because you know the Bible better. So if I know the Bible better than you, then God is obviously on my side of this because I know the Bible better, so I win the argument. But that is that mentality, frankly, has, has so many issues with it because it is the tail wagging the dog, the cart being placed before the horse. You know what? Anyone can say, God is on my side, therefore he is against you. And, and what you do is just list a handful of things that maybe you happen to agree with God on. You know, Hitler said, God is on our side. And he meant the God of the Bible. And he could list ways that his party defended some biblical values or norms and said, see, because we follow these biblical principles and we defend these biblical principles, God is on our side. And yet you could find dozens, maybe hundreds of governments that could make the same claim. And they would be at war with each other. God's on our side. God's on our side too. Well, who is right? Whose side is God really on? 
To make a silly analogy, you know, you, you, you go to a high school game and, you know, the, the team is praying for their team to win. The other team is praying for their team to win. So you know whose God, side God was on? The team who won, obviously, right? And we can think that way. But there is only one side. There is only God's side. You're either on it or you're not. And if you're on God's side, you're for everything God stands for, not just a few things that you happen to ground. See, we say God is on our side because what? Like I, in, in a particular argument, I happen to think that I'm correct or that I know the Bible better or that, you know, hey, our party, our, our group has a, a few more biblical values and convictions that we are defending? No. If, if you were really, if God was really on your side, there would be 100% alignment, would it not, with the things of God? Now, can any political party say that? Any government? Any person? No. So to me, it's a very dangerous thing to say, God is on our side. Now, it doesn't mean, having said that, it doesn't mean that a government or a political party or you as an individual should not believe and think certain things that are biblical and that that works itself out in biblical ways. But you really realize how easy it is. This is actually, you know, I get on my kids about saying like, oh my God, oh my goodness, you know, those sorts of things. Um, because, oh, you know, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You know, that's, that's blasphemy. I think it's way more blasphemous for a political party to say God is on our side. That, that's more blasphemous. Really? So everything that your platform is, is 100% what God wants? I tend to doubt it. I tend to doubt that <laughs> because God is not on anyone's side. You need to be on God's side. <laughs> are you for us or for our enemies? Are you for me or, are for, you or for my wife, you know, in this particular argument? No. <laughs> I am the commander of the army. In this case, it is, you know, I am, uh, you know, it, it's, there's a military context. But imagine it this way, you know, all right, God, am I right or it, is, uh, is my wife right? God would just say, no. I created marriage. I'm in charge of your marriage. You either need to get on my page or you're in disobedience. doesn't matter in a way, you know, who's, who's right or wrong. It matters, do you understand that I am the commander of your marriage, your nation, you know, whatever. I think in some ways that's an obvious way to think, but in some ways it gets in there so subtly in our mind, just the opposite. Think that God takes sides. I don't think God takes sides. We either take his side, and because we take his side, yeah, we vote a certain way. We say certain things. We promote certain things. We, we, we want to deny certain things and affirm certain things. But it's because we're on God's side, not because we think God is on our side. I know it's a subtle distinction to make, but I think it's very critically important to get that right because so many abuses occur, even blasphemy, even taking the Lord's name in vain. God doesn't want me to be right in my marriage. He wants me to be right with him and, and, and be a husband 
in a way that shows that I want God to be Lord of my entire life. That's what he wants. Well, it, it's, it's, it's senseless. It's not helpful to set yourself up against other people. Even as a nation, it's such a polarizing time. It's not helping anything to say, well, God is on our side. And if you don't vote this way, you're against God. No, it's much better to say, do you want to be on God's side? I think that's going to be way more persuasive and a much better conversation to say, like, okay, then what does God say? How can we both be on God's side? Because God, it's one of the things in, like, conflict reconciliation that happens a lot is uh, someone wants to be right, someone wants to be wrong. Someone wants to claim God as theirs and put the other God in, the guy in the position that God is against them. When in all biblical conflict resolution, God wants both of them to submit to him. God wants both the parties to be on God's side. And so your goal is, okay, you know, as a counselor anyway or a pastor, how can we all get on God's side here? <laughs> it's all of us, me too. All be on God's side. All be on God's team. Because he's not, he doesn't care whether UCLA wins or USC wins. He doesn't. You know, as much as those two might be praying, crying out to the Lord for success against the other. No, only God. Only God's side. It's just an amazing statement the more I thought about it. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No, I'm the commander of the army of Yahweh. No, I am the Lord of your marriage. No, I am the Lord of your career. No, I am the Lord of your finances. No, I am the Lord of your future. Should I go to this college, that college, this career, that career, marry this person, that person? I don't know that there's always like a God is for this one and against this one, but rather just no, yes. <laughs> you know, if you want to put a positive, yes, I am Lord of your marriage. Should I, should I go to, you know, I just use the cauldron, USC or UCLA? Yes, I'm the Lord of your future and your career. So whatever one you want, because as long as you're submitted to, to him and you want to be on his side, it's not going to matter what colors you wear what flag you live under, what nation you belong to, what your heritage is, any of those things. Are you on the Lord's side? I just, it's such an amazing and simple thought, I don't know, that, that really struck me as I was going through this. And that was the last key, the last act of preparation. And it was very personal to Joshua. Everything else until this point was very much, you know, the group and the community. But Joshua needed to know, after all that he had seen and all the celebrating they'd done and, you know, circumcising, all of those things for him to be told, you know who is really in charge here? You know whose side you need to be on? Not the, the Israelites or Egyptians or whatever. You need to be on my side. And I appreciate the last words are here are just, and Joshua did so. Did he believe? Did he submit? Did he understand? Yes, he did. And presumably, he worshiped and received likely the instruction that he is going to get in Joshua 6 for conquering Jericho. And then the question is, well, is he going to do it? Spoiler, he does. He trusts Yahweh that much because he chose God's side. So hopefully there in, um, you might find some application. Um, I hope that 
Uh, that's a helpful thought that, you know, rather than having this us or them attitude about life, whether that's personal or in bigger pictures, to say, well, how about I be on God's side? And how about what I tell people, wherever they are in life, you need to be on God's side too. Now, this evening, if you're not on God's side, if you've been relying on, well, my parents were Christians or I've gone to church my whole life, none of that necessarily puts you on God's side. Circumcised, not circumcised, you know, celebrating Passover. The only way to be on God's side is in God's way of membership, which is, do you believe in his son? Do you believe that his son shed his perfect blood, just like that little lamb was killed, and his blood shed, uh, uh, shed blood put on the doorposts and the lintels? Do you believe that Jesus shed his blood for your sins, to forgive you, and so that you could be a part of God's side, God's team, God's family, God's community, God's people. If you have, then you are a Christian. You can be a Christian uh, tonight. If you're not a part of God's side, the unfortunate reality is to be against God or to, to not be on God's side is to be against God. There's no like passive role either. Well, I'm not really on anyone's team here. Just God's doing his thing. I don't have anything against him. God, he can, he can do what he wants. I totally respect that, but I'm just going to be over here. Well, if you're not for him, you are against him. And necessarily, you will lose because you cannot win against God. And you will have to suffer the consequences as those Israelites did for faithlessness and disobedience, except it won't be 40 years of wandering. It will be eternity in judgment and in hell. But again, today, you can reach out to him in faith and trust. Be included in his family. Be on his side. Not because you earned it. Not because, like, you know, the, the, the best kickball player on the team you are picked first. But instead, Jesus calls out to the lowliest, the poorest, the weakest, the weak, and the most helpless to come to him. You can come to him and be on God's side tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we can be a part of uh, the winning team, and that's to put it way mildly to think of it that way. But isn't it true, though, Lord, that if we are with you, nothing can stand against us. If you are in our corner, if we are in your corner, there's no foe that is mightier or too great that we cannot vanquish and conquer, whether that's the sin in our lives and and the temptations, whether that's uh, hopelessness and fears, all of it we can handle because, Jesus, you are your Lord, and, and, and you stand with us. What a terrifying thing to oppose you then. And so we, we have this pity, I hope, we, this desire to see all people needing to be on your side, and that there's not one that we would not want to call out and say, if you stand opposed to God, you will be destroyed, but he he reaches out to us. He wants us to be on his side. Not on my side, but your side, Lord. And so give us that heart. That is the heart of revival. That is the heart of regeneration and the desire to see people come to know you. The heart of evangelism and sharing the gospel is that we want people to be on your side, not to pick the right candidate or party, but to pick you. And so thank you, Lord, for that opportunity. We pray, Lord, your blessing on our time together as we eat and drink and share in fellowship. And may you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.